I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily. Ooh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me. Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Hey everyone, Kristen Sonanta Walker here, and I'm excited because I am getting to have a conversation with Dr. Michael Rice, who's been a guest on one of our other podcasters shows, uh, Morph into a New You with Johnny Calloway. And, you know, I had the opportunity to listen to him on some of those shows. And one thing I can tell you, I love it when I, since I talk to so many people, I love it when I feel calmer on the inside uh, once I hear someone's voice. And that is what Dr. Michael Rice um, for me. So I hope that as you enjoy this interview and we find out, you know, more about him and the work that he does uh, himself and with his wife, that you'll get that calm sense of inner peace through the airwaves. So Dr. Michael Rice, thank you so much for coming on my show. Delighted and honored. <laughs> Look forward to seeing what unfolds. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. So or do you mind if I call you just Michael for the rest of the show? Call me anything but late for dinner. I'll be happy. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I wouldn't be late for dinner either. So um, you do have uh, two doctorates, one in um, naturopathic medicine and the other in holistic philosophy. What was the impetus for you going in those directions in your work? Well, my uh, my original work when I went to school was in the field of electronics, with a side study in physics. But where this work really started was at the uh, the day that I was to be born. I had my mother had been on pitocin for six days because of toxemia. They called my father at work and said, "If you want to see your son alive, you better get down here because he's not going to make it through mm-hmm. the first minutes after his birth." And uh, I was almost dead three or four times the first year of my life and for almost a quarter of a century, the first 25 years, lived on an inhaler and pills. That was my life. That uh, They gave me every drug they could to try to keep me alive. And, uh, you know, along about uh, the end of that time period, I realized that, well, this was keeping me alive. It wasn't doing anything to heal me. And I need to find healing because life was pretty traumatic when I was a kid. You know, the first couple of weeks of school every year, I was never in school. I was in an oxygen tent in a hospital. And uh, 
I've not had a drug in my body in the last several decades of circling the sun and don't plan to uh, to ever engage in such things again. And uh, so that was the impetus for moving in the direction of, well, what's this all about? What's what's going on here? And I then went to study naturopathic medicine, tied that in with holistic philosophy. How does this whole energy system we call life work together? And then about oh, almost 40 years ago now, found the Aramaic language and began an intensive scrutiny of Aramaic principles and in particular came across the Aramaic process of forgiveness and realized that that was the thing that I was searching for and I spent the last 40 years or so understanding and bringing forgiveness forward in its original sense. You know, we live in a culture that has a Greek orientation, and that Greek orientation, forgiveness goes like this. You did something really terrible that caused all this pain inside of me, but it's okay. I'll forgive you. I'll let you off the hook for what's going on inside of me, and then everything will be okay. <laughs> and of course, if I, I can, I can line up, you know, seven, six and a half billion people on the planet and I can let every one of them off the hook, what the Greeks would tell us would be forgiving them. But that doesn't do one thing to change the energetic patterns that are moving in me. Come to find out when I touched into the Aramaic that the word forgive has nothing whatsoever to do with me letting you off the hook because something painful is moving in me. Forgiveness in Aramaic is how I go inside myself and literally remove the energetic pattern of pain. Remove what never belonged in me in the first place. So once you realize that that's what forgiveness means, you've got a whole different process in this, this thing of, you know, I'm going to let you off the hook, I'm going to let you off the hook, I'm going to quote unquote forgive you. And I stop even thinking about forgiving you or anybody else. And I learned that forgiveness is about how I change what's happening inside of me. So true Aramaic forgiveness is this really simple tool that when understood and applied removes any form of suffering, pain, fear, and or hostility from within and empowers me to wake up to the joy of my true nature, which is love. Mm. You know, if you've ever held a newborn child. We were talking about babies a little while ago. Well, mm -hmm. This is a question my wife and I have asked literally to tens of tens of thousands of people all over the globe. Describe the nature of your newborn experience. And everybody's answer is the same. Everybody's answer is always some variation on the theme of love. Whenever people tap into the essence of a newborn. Now, when I, I've got an audience and I get answers from several people, and the agreement is always, as I say, it's beauty, it's sweetness, it's peace, it's serenity, it's love, it's some variation on a theme of that. I then ask a question, and the question is, so now, when you tap into that newborn, is the newborn loving you, or is the newborn love? Everybody says, well, obviously the newborn is love. It's not that the newborn is loving me. So notice that we've been tricked into believing that forgiveness is about me letting you off the hook for what's going on inside of me 
and that love is something I'm going to do to you or that you're going to do to me or that I'm going to get from you or you're mm. going to get from me, which is a sure way to lead to frustration and pain in a relationship. So when we go back and correct the definition of the words, you know, Plato said, let me define the words and I'll end the argument. If you listen to or you check out the writings of Vladimir Lenin, here's a man who was probably responsible for more deaths than anybody in the whole history of the planet. And he says this, if you want to destroy a culture, you have to change the meaning of its words. And when we change the meaning of words, people can, give, can be given instructions to do something, but if they have incorrect definitions for the words involved in the instructions, they can't follow the instructions and achieve the result. So what my work has become about is on a global scale, restoring the understanding, number one, of what both forgiveness, love, actually a whole host of words really mean so that we can restore a culture based in the experience of the beings that we are as love. You know, the, the kids wrote a song a few decades ago. You probably remember it. You're in the right age range, I suspect, mm -hmm. to remember them singing, looking for love in all the wrong places, mm -hmm. looking for love in too many faces, trying to get it from somebody else instead of being reestablished as the presence of love in our own physiology and in our own lives. And to be reestablished as the presence of love, forget this trying to love anybody, be reestablished as love, then you are that space, no matter what happens in your world. Instead of trying to effort this thing of loving someone, if you go back in the Aramaic, we're told that this man, Yeshua, you know, popularly he's known as Jesus, but his name was actually Yeshua, he never said to love anybody. It just isn't there. The Greeks translated as we're told, well, the number one law is you've got to love your neighbor. That's a terrible thing to tell somebody because what we know is that we live in a world of resonance. And let's say I have some unresolved fear or hostility in me and you as my neighbors show up. And because we live in resonance, I carry this energy of fear or hostility if you happen to carry the same, you're probably going to be drawn to me and we'll draw that out of each other. And here I stand efforting loving you when what you resonate in me is, let's say, my rage. And what I want to do is rage. And now I'm this terrible failure. If I were given the instruction that could be followed, that is, be the space of active love be the presence of love. Now, if you as my neighbor show up and resonate my rage, and I understand what forgiveness means, you just gave me the opportunity to heal my rage. Thank you. I can throw my rage away. Now I can be the space of love. Now I'm on track with the first century Aramaic understanding of those words, and I get to live as the presence of love rather than efforting loving somebody that just resonated my pain. Pretty tough thing to do. Right. Right. And we do put a lot on ourselves, um, you know, guilt, shame, all of those things. We sort of martyr ourselves around this whole topic as well. <laughs> That's it. That's it. 
Mm-hmm. And it's nothing, it leads to nothing but disease and disorder in the mind. But in order to actually activate and step into that true experience of love, it, it, it's a tool that heals a diseased mind. It has nothing to do with the Greek act of pardoning that we've falsely been taught is forgiveness. And, you know, pardoning is a wonderful thing. If you and I interact and you do something that's off the wall and I decide to let you off the hook, that's wonderful. And when I understand what that is, it's pardoning you, then I'll go ahead if you've resonated, let's say, that anger in me, and I'll get to forgive my anger. I'll get to free myself of that anger because I understand that when I pardon someone, that's one thing, then I move forward and do my forgiveness work. If I think that when I pardon you, I've forgiven, I'll stop there. My rage, my fear, my sadness, my grief, my pain, my hatred, my whatever it is, remains intact to be reactivated another day by you or someone else. Whereas because you've shown me my rage, my fear, whatever it is, I understand that I may pardon you, then apply forgiveness, I walk on free of that rage or fear or anger or at least some part of it. And the next time you or somebody else shows up and does a behavior that yesterday would move that in me, I'm free of that movement. So I more easily get to achieve the goal of living as a human being, living as the presence of love. Hmm. How about turning that the other direction where, um, you know, you're wanting someone's forgiveness and maybe they're not wanting to give it to you. Well, so if if I'm wanting someone's forgiveness, first of all, I have a an error in thought about forgiveness because I think it's something that they're going to give to me and that it's got something to do with me. What I'm really saying when I say I want you to forgive me is just, I'm saying I want you to pardon me And if you refuse to do that and I go into sadness, now I'm in a situation where I have the opportunity to learn to forgive the sadness I impose upon myself. Mm. If I go into fear because you won't pardon me, now is my opportunity to learn to forgive my fear. I apply forgiveness to fear in me and now I stand as the presence of love and if I ask your pardon and you say, no, I, I'm going to hate you forever, I'll say, well, okay, I'll hold you in a blessing. But, you know, that hate's pretty painful. Right. Can I support you healing your hate? Right. I'm not stuck in, in, in relationship to anyone else. I'm not stuck with they have to do a behavior for me to function as love. When you misapply and misunderstand forgiveness, then you're at everybody's mercy. Because anybody who can come along and resonate something in you, the sadness, the grief, whatever it is, that energy will start to move in you once you realize that it moves in you. But we've been been stuck in a really dangerous mental disorder, mental disease in our culture, and that's the disease of denial. And in this work, the work I've developed, I define denial. Now, there's, there's a denial that's, you know, the pretense that something never happened or the pretense that something doesn't exist. But we have a very specific, specific, pardon me, definition for denial in this work. And that is the act of thinking or speaking as though something outside of me 
is the cause of something moving inside of me. When and and that's almost denial is almost a universal disorder. And an example of it is if you ever said to somebody, "You make me so mad. <laughs> you really hurt me. You know, you you really have a problem." Well, for the person who points the finger at someone else and says, "You really have a problem," I ask the question. You'll notice you've been through that particular form of anger 87 different times with 42 different people. <laughs> Did you notice you're the only one that was there every time? Right. Your anger, your sadness, your fear, your rage is about you. It's not about them. You need to be about forgiving that as opposed to expecting somebody else to stop doing something so you don't have to experience that. But as long as you remain in denial, as long as you think or speak as though that which is outside of you is causing that energy to move in you, then you have to hide the true cause of what's moving in you from yourself. Now you've dissociated from a part of your own mind. Right. The part of your mind that you dissociate from, you now wear on your sleeve. Everybody in Dodge knows about it, but you literally it's hidden from you and therefore unchangeable in you. And you become the victim of your own denial, your own dissociated mind. And what happens then, because we live in a universe of resonance, resonance is an energetic law that says that when two energy fields are in tune or in harmony with each other, there's an exchange of energy in them, in between them. And so while I resonate fear in me, I'm literally sending up a measurable high energy wave that says to all the world, is there anybody in Dodge that knows how to make me afraid? <laughs> and somebody's going to show up and do a behavior. Right. When they do that behavior, because I've dissociated from my fear, and that person does this behavior that resonates my fear, I use the dissociated part of my own mind that contains that fear to literally make up a perceptual world where you become the cause of my fear. And now that projection, that content of my own mind, turned into an image in my mind of what I think is you, a picture in my brain, I believe that you're the cause of what's happening inside of me. And now its cause is unresolvable because I've hidden myself, hidden it from myself and projected into my brain's image of you. What first century Aramaic forgiveness does is it literally collapses that projection and when the projection collapses in on itself, the picture that you're the cause of my fear, again, I've been through this fear 87 different times with 42 different people. It's <laughs> about me. But when I know what drives that projection in me, then that projection collapses in on itself. And when it collapses in on itself, it exposes what I and probably generations and generations in my bloodline have been hiding from myself. And I get to remove or forgive that content. You know, there's a, a, a story in the Old Testament about this group of people called the Jews who, you know, they end up in the desert and they're lost in the desert for 40 years. 
And you got to say to yourself, you know, this is a pretty bright group of people. They've obviously, you know, in their writing, they've shown they understand astronomy and such. Mm -hmm. They're really bright enough to know that, you know, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And so they could start walking either easterly or westerly and be out of the desert within not too many days. That story isn't a story about being lost in a 30-square-mile area for 40 years. You have to be pretty dumb to be lost for 40 years in a 30-square-mile area. <laughs> the desert is a code word for the unconscious, for the dissociated state and the dissociated mind. And if you read that passage, you'll remember that what happened in order for them to get out of the desert, they said the old generation had to die off. Now, that didn't mean that everybody in old physical bodies had to physically die. The root of the word generations generate means cause. All of the causes that we've dissociated from, that we put into the unconscious or the desert in ourselves, we have to face and move through. You remember there was this guy named John the Baptist. He came along and they called him the raving maniac in the desert. <laughs> and you had to meet him before you could meet what they called the Christ. Now the Christ, in Aramaic, that word, literally means, the word that has been translated as that by the Greeks, literally means a mind that is directly connected to the mind of active present love. And before we can live in that mind, we've got to run into John the Baptist the raving maniac in the desert, the one who can reach into our unconscious and arouse in us all of the ra ravings, all of the insanity, all of the rage and hatred and fear. We have to meet that one and learn how to forgive what is elicited or aroused by him before we can stand back in our original stead as connected to what was called the mind of Christ the active presence of love and living out of that presence of love 24 7 365 is our birthright because that's the stuff we're made of again hold the newborn child if, if we ever forget that hold the newborn child ah right. the conscious active presence of love that's where we're designed to live but if we create this unconscious condition then we're going to have to run into somebody who's going to bring it up in us Right. And when we start to see that life is giving us the opportunity, when it resonates, our fear or rage or whatever it is, it's giving us the opportunity to forgive us to that in us, which keeps us unconscious. And the average person doesn't start to suspect until around the age of 40 that there's something else going on here other than it's everybody else's problem and everybody else's fault. <laughs> Yeah, I used to say this with my ex-husband who, sorry listeners, and you've heard me say this a million times, but Michael hasn't heard me say it. Um, he's my, my best friend in the world and the longest relationship, um, you know, that, that I've really had. Uh, we know we're going on 32 years and um, in our early years of our relationship, I was like, we're the perfect couple because I blame myself for everything and you blame everybody else for everything. <laughs> there you go. A direct reflection. <laughs> so, you know, now we were very clearly 32 years later where we can giggle about these things. But at the time, it was not it's not a fun way right? to Well, when you run into, you know, the average person, 
When we live in a world of you made me angry, you made me sad, you made me afraid, we're living in a world that in this work I've developed a way of speaking that as we live in blockage of truth. So I hide truth from myself. I make up a lie. You're the one who made me angry. Again, I've been through this anger 87 different times with 42 different people, but right now you're the one who made me angry. So I, I call that lie in my mind truth, and now I'm in blockage of truth. When we live in blockage of truth and somebody shows up that delivers truth to us, our stress goes up. And stress, when it comes up in the mind, attaches to one of two things. It either attaches to getting rid of <laughs> the source of the information we don't want to deal with, the truth. Right. And, you know, in that, that story I was telling earlier, that's the role of John the Baptist. You know, in order for us to wake up to the true being that we are as love and live in the mind of direct access to love 24-7, 365, we have to meet John the Baptist. But when he shows up, we'll tend to... When he shows up with truth, up comes stress, and we want to take off his head. You know, there are two skills that John the Baptist had not developed, that if you're going to play that role of John the Baptist, you really need to develop. And that is that if you're going to act as the person who can bring up people's unconscious, one, you have to hold that space. You're talking about you felt serenity, you felt at, at peace when hearing uh, literally the space that's here. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to play that role of John the Baptist and show people they're unconscious, the two skills you really need to develop is you got to know when to duck and when to hold the mirror up. Oh my or gosh. You lose, or you lose your head. So John the Baptist <laughs> delivered information to the king and queen that they didn't want to hear. And they literally took his head off. Yeah. So when I can learn to duck properly and reflect back, then when I can show people the truth and their stress goes up, I can help them to rewire their stress to the correction of their own minds and forgiveness to free themselves of stress rather than blame everybody else. Or you for being the one that brings it up. That is so funny exactly. because I had this reaction. I thought it was really interesting. And anytime I you know, there's so much going on in the world. There's so much coming at us, you know, now with social media and the internet and all that, which has been wonderful. And it also has its, um, its uh, hardships that go along with it. So there's just all this information, all this information. But when I really remember something that uh, bothered me, um, I do know what you're saying. I know now, you know, I don't associate it with the person that, um, said the thing that I didn't like. I did that a lot when I was younger, of course, because that's about where my developmental. <laughs> the first 40 years in the desert, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Now that that's I'm. It. That's the whole metaphor. God, I'm one more year closer to 50. I just, people <laughs> sometimes look at me like, you're nuts that you're excited that you're getting older. And I'm like, are you kidding? I'm so happy about this, the stuff that I learned and the stuff that I let go of now. But anyway, this is what happened. I had, um, I had this person that just kept, was a really good salesperson, very passionate about what they do and do wonderful things in the world. And I was going to their conference and 
at my own expense and where they held the conference was so expensive, you know, New York city, the most expensive place ever. So, you know, for me to travel there, get hotel rooms, uh, you know, do all this stuff was really expensive for my company. And, um, they wanted me to come back the next year. And I said, you know, I don't need to come back. I can do these, I can, you know, record shows with people right from my podcast studio that are at your conference and I can post them up on my show and I don't even have to be there, you know, to do that. I can do it, you know, when I'm at your conference, uh, you know, the sound isn't great. Uh, I'm pulling people away from wanting to go listen to other people talk. Like it's much better to do it this way that I'm offering to you that again, I'm still going to do my expense, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. They're all about, you have to be here. You have to be here. And I finally just said, no, then I'm not going to do it at all. And this really bothered this person. And they came back to me later and they found out that I was going through a really hard time in my life at the time of that particular venue, something that had nothing to do with the venue. It just was, you know, they found out uh, from me, you know, yeah, I, I was having a really hard time. And He actually said to me, oh, now I understand. You have associated that hard time in your life with my venue. And I I remember feeling really angry. I didn't say anything in anger, but I remember feeling really angry and thinking, how dare you? That is not for you to determine how I was feeling or what I associated or, you know, or that I'm picking your venue as this bad memory of something that's going on with me. And, and then I realized whatever that's, you know, his belief system and I'm just going to let it go. But I always remember that moment. Um, and now I know why listening to what you're saying, um, you know, the other side of that coin too, is people can also make these judgments about what it is that you're going through and then step into um, taking blame or um, telling you how you feel about something or just put a story, right. their own story on your experience. And I think what was good about that for me was for me to actually feel angry not that it had anything to do with him, that that part doesn't matter, just more that my story and what I get upset about belongs to me. And that's what I want to focus on. And it's for me to do my work on. And you don't get to take that from me. It was like an act of owning myself to do that. Does that make sense? Right. It does. Yes. So I just, just as you were talking, I thought that's why that bothered me so much. And now, you know, I just let it go because I just figured it out as you were talking. But um, it, there's there's a lot of stuff we do to um, project onto other people, our stuff, what their stuff is. How do we uh, figure that out? That's why they behave the way they do. And we're just making up stories. We don't even know what the hell we're talking about half the time. <laughs> Well, there's some interesting research. It's actually the most quoted research in the psychological realm. It comes out of Harvard uh, studies way back, I forget exactly when, in the 70s. And, you know, they took people into a lab, hooked them up to electrodes, and they're measuring brain cell firings. And what they discovered is that in a time frame where 10,000 brain cells are firing, 
the max amount of data that goes into conscious awareness is nine bits. We have, in essence, what I like to call a nine-bit mind. The actual lab sets were seven plus or minus two, a minimum of five bits of data, a maximum of nine. The person who gets nine bits of data would say is a genius. The person who gets five bits of data would say they're probably mentally retarded. But the mind only shows us a tiny fraction of what's going on. And perception is something that's generated internally by the mind. You know, we think we've got right. a set of eyes that look out into the world. Right. That's a lie. We've all been sold a bill of goods. You've <sighs> never seen anything through your eyes in your life. Mm. The eye is a one-way valve. You can't see out of your eye. Information comes in, and according to what fires inside of us, and according to what resonates in response to that, we make up the world that we see. Literally, yeah. The visual world exists nothing like the way our brain shows it to us. It's our brain's best guess of what's out there, but we don't see things out there. We literally generate this whole world of perception. You know, if you've ever been in a courtroom and you listen to six people testify about an accident, you wonder if any two were at the same accident. Right, exactly. How, how, how do their descriptions <laughs> vary so widely? No two people experienced the same accident. Yes, there was an actuality. Something happened, and now we've got six people whose minds built a perceptual construct, a reality that they projected upon the actuality. And the actuality, in many cases, has little or nothing to do with the reality that shows up in people's minds. So when I realized that my reality, what my mind is generating, is based in any form of hostility or fear, I have work to do in order to get back to the point where my perception is on the high level of you know, nine bits of data that are accurate, and I really get to comprehend what's actually happening out there rather than living in the constructs of my mind that are just nothing but reflections of my own unconscious. Yeah. You go back to the Aramaic and you hear this man Yeshua saying 2,000 years ago, you must forgive from your heart the wrongs of your brother. And that sounds like some sort of a bleeding heart, you know, from the Greek translations, a mm -hmm. bleeding heart statement. But the heart, you know, we've labored in the Western world for almost 2,000 years, not knowing what the word heart in those ancient teachings meant. Now we know, since the rediscovery of the unconscious in the West, that he was saying you must remove from your unconscious the dissociated part of your mind that degraded hostility or fear information that you put into your brain's image of your brother. Mm. You must forgive that from your, remove that from your unconscious in order for you to be free of its influence. And if people never get to do that, they get to live the title of my book, which is, why is this happening to me again? Right, exactly. So what what would you say to someone and I, that would say, well, but I was... Uh, my my mother was killed by my neighbor and my neighbor killed my dog and then they did this horrible atrocity and this horrible atrocity. What do you say to people yeah. that bring that to you? Because I'm sure you've had people bring that to you. Yeah, I hear that you're walking around in a lot of pain, mm. that you've got a lot of stored energy dynamics of pain and that's a really difficult way to live. Would you like a tool with which to unload that pain so that you can walk around as a human being, remember that newborn experience, the pure presence of love? 
wouldn't it be nice to live as that rather than this bundle of pain and trauma that is caused by someone else or appears to be caused by someone else? So here's the tool of forgiveness. You can start to shave those energetic patterns off of your own energy field, be free of it, and walk around as the presence of love. Life becomes a whole different experience than reflecting. You know, and, and, and that doesn't mean, you know, we'll oftentimes get people saying, well, well, you mean that person who killed my mother, I should just let them go free and just say, oh, well, that's the way it is. Nothing, nothing that came out of my mouth reflected anything that relates to that. Right. You know, if they did something that's Im- improper, illegal, then please hold them accountable. 2,000%, you know, maybe they're supposed to spend the rest of their lives in prison, but do you have to be in prison with them? Ah, oh, see, right there. That Can right you there. free yourself? Can you free yourself of what's in your heart, that pain, that trauma, that loss, that grief? Are you willing to, would you like to forgive that? And then out of a conscious, loving mind, hold this person accountable for their behavior. Right. It doesn't mean you lay down and take it. You yeah, are it much you more intelligent, walk up and give much them more love. capable. Yeah, it doesn't mean that you have to have yeah. anything to do with them physically. That exactly. you could mean that you move across the country to be away from them so that you can heal from and do this work to, you know, yes. on your own healing. So it uh, that's the biggest thing I think that people get as a misperception is, oh, you mean I'm just going to go walk around and hold hands with this murderer or, you know, whatever yeah. the situation is. And the answer is absolutely yeah. not. If that, if no, it's nothing to do with that. It's, Precisely. it's that. Yeah. Mm. Well, we could have shows for days, uh, obviously. <laughs> well, I've, we have a teaching center in the Ozarks in Southern Missouri, a place called Heartland. We're a little town of about 250 people, and we do summer intensives that are 65 days long. So the conversation we're having now, I'll spend anywhere from (laughs) 6 to 10 hours a day for 65 days straight covering material like this. It's broken up into several sections. We do a a minimum of a nine-day workshop, but up to 65 days. And, you know, when people come and we're going to do a – okay, I've cut my summer. i got 65 days. But we're gonna do what for 65 days? We're gonna do. We're gonna talk about this forgiveness thing. Uh, how could we? How could we ever do 65 days of that? And then on about day 63, people who They're have like, done that are like, "What? What? Well, wait a minute. We're not gonna stop now. We just got started." Exactly. But when you start looking at, you know, ultimately what we're inviting people to do is to look into what's in their genes. Mm-hmm. Now you go back to the Aramaic language, and the word sin in Aramaic is an arch term. It's got nothing to do with the Greeks, what the Greeks have taught us about sin. It actually is a term that was used. You know, if I picked up my bow and arrow and I fired at the bullseye and I missed the bullseye, the scorekeeper would yell, sin. You're off the mark. That's all the word means. Oh. And so with, if I put an energy into my structure that's off the mark, wherever that energy is, and Obviously, if I am created as the essence of love, anything other than love is off the mark. It's sin. When I put it into my structure, that part of my structure is going to suffer and ultimately 
literally those energies that are off the mark will cause my disintegration and death. When they said the wages of sin is death, that wasn't some kind of theological threat. God's going to get you for your sins. They were just saying, put an energy in that doesn't belong, and you degrade your own perception, literally your own tissue structure. And so then you hear them saying, and I can remember being told this as a kid in church and thinking this was some kind of theological threat. Well, they said the sins of the fathers are passed, yay, unto three and four generations. It's like, oh, I'm going to get punished by God for what my great, 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 great grandfather did? That's not fair. <laughs> but what they were actually telling us was not that, that it's a threat. They were telling us that the way this human energy system works is it's an energetic device that stores every frequency holographically in every cell in the structure, including the sperm and the egg. Every frequency we engage in is stored there holographically. And when you conceive a child, that child has in its structure literally every thought, every feeling, every reality of the generations that went before them. Right. That's in our structures. And the real invitation with this work is to clean up the generational patterns. Right. You know, if you sit down with a pen and paper and do the math and you just look at 30 generations, literally in our genes are the memories, the thoughts, the experiences, the feelings, the rages, the guilt, the fears that have never been resolved of over 1.7 billion people in 30 right. generations. And so the invitation is to go in and start cleaning up the unconscious, to clean out the hostilities, the fears, the rages, the guilts, the griefs, the pains of those generations, thereby upgrading our own multi-generational database to one that supports love and literally opening the energy window for everybody in the previous generations to be freed of those patterns and everybody in the future generations to be freed of those patterns. Right. That's the invitation of that work. And it's not an easy work because feel, healing isn't Dr. Feelgood. No, good Lord. Those no. patterns have to be faced, <laughs> breathe through, and with. Yeah. So, absolutely. yes, we could do many, many shows. And, and you know, I, I have a, uh, a radio show that now is going into its eighth year. So, we've got, or, pardon My me, going goodness. into its ninth year. We've got eight years of archives, and we do five days a week, an hour a day, so that people who start to use these tools have access to support. So people can call us from one till two o'clock Eastern time, five days a week, and ask their specific questions about how to use a whole series of tools that we present. And the archives, you know, we've got over 2,000 hours in our archives that people can go into and access for free and listen and really get a sense of how to use these tools and then the ongoing show to continue with support and questions and refining the understanding. Have you been on blog talk radio that entire time? Yes. Okay, yeah, we've been I doing started. a blog talk show. We've got about eight years of archives an hour I a day. I started my a week. show there too. And it was funny when I moved to um, a different platform, which is owned by the same company, but I have a network. So Blog Talk Radio isn't really set up to do a podcast network, but there this other company um, that is also owned that also owns Blog Talk Radio is. So we moved, and I said, "How come I can I can only move over um, 300 of my shows? I have 700 shows." <laughs> they were like, right. "Well, uh." 
that would be a huge uh, RSS feed and we don't do that. So I have those shows still living on blog talk radio. And sometimes I do what's called evergreening them. I'll bring them back and put them on, you know, the new network and have them reprocessed so that new people can hear them. But it was funny to be told, yeah, we're only going to be able to move over 300. <laughs> oh, really? Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Please tell our listeners your website and the name of your podcast. Sure. Well, our website is whyagain.org. The title of my book is Why Is This Happening to Me Again? So it's the first word in the title and the last word, whyagain.org. Our site is huge. We've got well, I think maybe something like 11,000 pages. So. And it's just all kinds of free material. Basically, my wife and I travel six to ten months a year around the globe wherever we're invited. We pay our own expenses, our workshops are built free, and our commitment is simply to make this tool of forgiveness available literally to every mind, heart, and being on the planet. So the website's dedicated to that. Our radio show, the archives there, dedicated to that. And people can download my book, Why Is This Happy to Be Again, free from the website. We'll read it right there on the website. Uh, there are pages and audience. We have, of course, a YouTube channel with uh, hundreds of videos that uh, people can get access to the tools. And our kindness is to make them available. So I can work. And the people want support. If you want to ask more questions, you know, five days a week from 1 till 2 o'clock Eastern time, they can call my radio show. At 563 999 3581. Once it's in the block, five days a week, and they'll be having a conversation with me. And Fantastic. we'll support them in every way, which way we can to understand and to engage in these tools. Mm-hmm. And of course, we invite them to pass them on because our commitment is to literally wake up humanity to our human beingness, which is love, to be stressed to the truth of who we are. And make the tools available to every mind, heart, and being on the planet. Wonderful. Well, thank you. I'm so thankful to Johnny Calloway for um, introducing you to me, and I'm so glad that you came on the show, and um, I'm glad to have you now in my circle of of incredible people that I know. So thank you so much. Honored and delighted. Johnny and I go back. I think he was at Heartland about probably close to 30 years ago when he came to Heartland the first time to acquire these tools and put them to work in his life. Yep. Yep. He's a, he's a good man, a good friend. Um, but again, thank you so much. And listeners, I want to make sure that you know to go to whyagain.org. You know, just check it out. It's, it's one of those, I know some of you, like uh, my friend Attila that's in Belgium, he's going to laugh when he hears me say his name, but this is so up your alley, my friend. He's been a listener for a long time, but, um, you know, just check it out and, and try to have an open heart and, and take it in. So, and I that's love. the word why W H Y again, yes. dot org. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Not the letter, uh, Y, but the right. actual Y. So, all right. Well, thank you so much. And listeners, thank you for tuning into another edition of mental health news radio. Delighted. Blessings. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous, and they're just good people. 
and also mygenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, copenotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. Sometimes I'm passive aggressive, but never without good intentions. I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you, I can fight it. Good boy.